Morning, St. Paul's. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for joining us today. So, it's only taken us 27 weeks and 18 months, but we have finally reached the last chapter in Revelation. Hallelujah. We've done it. <laughs> um, before I get into the message, I, I wanted to say I realize this is a very difficult book, and we've been doing it over the course of a very long time. So as we're wrapping up, you might feel like I've got questions. Uh, I don't know whether they were addressed. They might have been addressed, but I forgot. If you've got anything you know, lingering in your mind, I want to encourage you to send those questions to me this week. So you can either you can message me on Facebook. Um, you can uh, send them to my email, ryan at stpaulswired.org. And if I get enough of those questions, I might just do like a Revelation Q&A next week. Um, I think that might be fun, personally. So, um, and as you can imagine, I cannot promise that I will have an answer to every question, <laughs> but I like to at least engage them. So if you still have those questions lingering, send them, okay? All right, so where we left off last week, we were in the middle of John's vision of the culmination of history, uh, the new Jerusalem, the eternal good state, or to put it in more popular language, heaven. And in chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation, that vision continues. So if you have your own Bible, you want to follow along, I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. Let's say a prayer. Lord, uh, we thank you for being with us throughout this challenging uh, journey as we seek to understand this book. And Lord, I just pray that um, you would continue to give us insight as we process it this morning. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these words, uh, comfort those of us who need to be comfort comforted, warn those of us who need to be warned. Um, Lord, minister to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is where the vision of the New Jerusalem concludes, so we're going to pause here for a little while. What John describes here is the story of the Bible coming full circle. There's a lot of imagery here that recalls the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and specifically the Garden of Eden, um, the, the state of creation before human beings sinned. Like Eden, there's a river flowing through the middle of it, through the middle of the New Jerusalem. Like Eden, there are trees that provide uh, food and healing. Like Eden, 
humans live there and they serve God and they reign over creation. So what John's vision is saying here is that heaven is going to be the restoration of Eden. Now, like we talked about last week, it's not just going to be the restoration of Eden. It's going to be even better than that because heaven is a city, right? It is a thriving, diverse human civilization. But as we see here, it is also the restoration of Eden. Everything good that was lost in the beginning is regained. There is now no more curse, no more curse of sin. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are going to live with God and God will provide everything we need. Um, the, the vision describes the water of life right, flowing freely from God's throne, which means that everything that we need for abundant, eternal life will be provided directly from God. We're not going to be lacking in any way. We're not going to be parched uh, physically or spiritually. No more depression. No more anxiety. No more uh, fear or PTSD. No more feelings of worthlessness or purposelessness. All of that will be eliminated through this endless flow of the perfect love of God quenching our souls forever. Now you might remember that last week we identified a list of eight things that John's vision reveals about heaven. And a lot of those things are reaffirmed in this passage here, right? There's the idea that heaven is a place without suffering. Uh, there's the idea that heaven is beautiful. And there's the idea that heaven is a place where God dwells with human beings. You might have noticed, uh, it said, they will see his face, as in we will see God's face. In other words, there is no longer going to be anything blocking or impeding our view of God, our experience of God, our experience of the love of God. Nothing is going to get in the way of that. We are going to see God exactly as he is, without any sin or evil distorting our view of him. Notice how John says, there will be no more night. If you're anything like me, you're wondering, okay, does that mean that there's not going to be any more evening? There's not going to be a balance of day and, and night in the new creation? Does it mean that we're not going to have any more sunrises or sunsets? I mean, personally, I do kind of like the balance of uh, day and night myself. So is all that going to be thrown out in the new creation? Well probably doesn't surprise you to hear me say that, like everything in Revelation, I find this to be very symbolic. I think it's meant to be taken very uh, symbolically. You might remember that back in John's Gospel, in the prologue uh, to the whole thing, John describes Jesus as the light of the world that shines in the darkness. Now, was John saying that Jesus was like a glowworm? You know, that everywhere he went, he just radiated light like a, a literal lantern? No, of course not, right? What John meant is that Jesus illuminates our spiritual darkness. Um, through him, we come to understand who God is and what God is like. Apart from Jesus, when it comes to that, the knowledge of God, we're, we're in the dark. We don't have a complete picture. But Jesus reveals the Father, right? Jesus reveals what God is like. He shines light into our spiritual darkness. He illuminates our understanding. 
So when John says there will be no more night, I hear him saying there will be no more confusion anymore about who God is and what God is like. He will be fully revealed. We will know him as he is. And that's why John says this right after he says we will see his face. I also think that the absence of night in the New Jerusalem reflects something we talked about last week, that heaven is a place without sin and evil. Uh, when John wrote his epistle, 1 John, he said that we walk in darkness when we hate one another and when we are dishonest. And so I hear in these words, there will be no more night, a promise that it's going to be the end of hatred. It's going to be the end of, of lying and dishonesty. So most of this seems to be a reaffirmation of what we looked at last week. But there is at least one detail that I think we can add to our list of eight things. We can make a ninth point, which is heaven is a place where people do good work. Heaven is a place where people do good work. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice the last line in this part of the chapter. They will reign forever and ever. Now, you hear that word reign, and you might think, oh, it must be talking about God and the Lamb. Well, of course, yes, God and the Lamb will reign forever and ever. But when it says they will reign forever and ever, if you look at it in context, it is not specifically talking about God and the Lamb there. It's talking about the human beings in the New Jerusalem. They will reign forever and ever. Now, you probably hear the phrase, they will reign forever and ever, and you might imagine yourself sitting on a throne, right, and barking orders to someone or something. Not sure who it would be, right, because if all human beings are reigning who are there, I don't know who you'd be barking orders at, right? <laughs> um, so how should we think about this? What does this mean? They will reign forever and ever. Well, remember... This passage has a lot of allusions back to Genesis, right? It's saying that God's original intention, as expressed in Genesis, is going to be fulfilled. And if we look at Genesis, what we find is that human beings are created in God's image to reign over the rest of creation. When God forms human beings in his image, he says, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Rule over. Some translations say, um, have dominion. So when John describes people in heaven reigning forever and ever, that's probably what he means. He's describing human beings fulfilling God's original intention in Genesis. Now, what was that intention? Okay, what does it mean for human beings to reign over the rest of creation? Well, here's the way I like to put it. God created a world full of possibilities. And then when he made human beings in his image, he equipped them to bring those possibilities into reality. Human beings, more so than any other species, are empowered created in such a way that they have this ability, we have this ability to bring possibilities into reality. Okay, so example, God created trees. A lot of possibility latent in a tree, 
right? Human beings made in God's image then create log cabins and everything else that you can make out of trees. God creates an egg. Human beings make an omelet. So creation full of possibilities. Human beings created in God's image have this power to bring those possibilities into reality. And it's because we are made in God's image, which means we are made to reflect the character of God. God reigns, and God has made us to be like second in command in his creation. We have this ability to exercise creativity, right? To reason, to love. Human beings, we have this capacity to make decisions that are not just preconditioned by everything that's happened before. Obviously, everything that's happened before influences what we, we do, but we also tra can transcend that because we are made in the image of God. And in heaven, we are going to fulfill our God-given abilities to bring possibilities into reality um, in the best possible way. Okay, We're not going to be bringing bad possibilities into reality, as we sometimes do now. Uh, we're only going to be bringing good possibilities into reality. And we're going to be exercising our rulership in a way that contributes to the glory of heaven forever. In ever-increasing glory. And one way of describing the process of bringing good possibilities into reality is the word work. Right? That's what work is. So in heaven, we are going to work. But it's not going to be toilsome work. It's going to be life-giving work. It's going to be good work. It's going to be the kind of work that makes us feel alive and like we're fulfilling our, our purpose. And it's neat to think we're never going to run out of good possibilities to bring into reality because God, who is infinite, is the source of those possibilities. So there will never be uh, an end to the good things that we can create and enjoy. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 6. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Okay, we'll pause here. Three times in this passage, a word is used that probably sounds a little strange to us. Soon. Soon. The angel says that this revelation has been given to God's servants to reveal the things that will soon take place, right? And twice, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, and heaven has not descended to earth. Jesus has not returned. Evil and suffering are still rampant in creation. So why did Jesus tell people 2,000 years ago, I'm coming soon? Well, I know of two possible answers to that question, and I think both of them are true. First possible answer is because soon for God is different than for us. Notice Jesus says right after this, uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It means there has never been a time where Jesus has not been. For all of history and before that, Jesus is the great I am. He has always been and he always will be. And so you can, you can imagine that if you have God's perspective and you're thinking of the grand scheme of history, a couple thousand years could very well just be a little drop in the bucket, right? When the early church wondered why Jesus was taking his time and coming back, the apostle Peter said that you have to remember that time is different from God's perspective. He says a thousand years is, is like a day for God. And Peter also pointed out, you need to see God's slowness, not as slowness, but as his patience, as his grace. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. God refrains from coming back quickly because he wants as many people to be part of the kingdom of heaven as possible. So that's one possible answer, okay? Soon is different from God's perspective. But there's another way of answering the question. I I looked up the word for soon that Jesus uses, both of those times that he says, behold, I am coming soon. And it doesn't have to mean I am coming immediately. According to Strong's Concordance, it can also mean I am coming suddenly, or I am coming like a surprise. Jesus' coming was unpredictable 2,000 years ago, and it's just as unpredictable now, despite the fact that some people think they can tell you when it's going to happen. It's unpredictable. And so when Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, I think we should hear a reminder of that. Behold, I am coming when you can't predict. I come suddenly. I come like a surprise. Okay? So, be ready. Be ready. Now that leads to the question, well, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? Jesus says in verse 7, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. 
One of the ways that we ready ourselves is by keeping the words of this prophecy. How do we keep the words of this prophecy? Well, there's a couple ways that we might think we're keeping them, but I don't think we actually are. So one is to search this prophecy for clues as to when Jesus' precise date of return is. And people have done that throughout history, and like I just said, that's pointless. You shouldn't be doing that, because behold, I am coming soon probably means behold, I am coming, I'm coming when you can't predict it, right? So that's not one of the ways that we keep this prophecy. That's not what it's for. It also doesn't mean uh, filling your basement with canned goods so that you're ready for the tribulation. Um, I mean, you know that I think that the tribulation is the entire period between Christ's first and second comings. So I think we're in the tribulation right now. And Jesus' call to the church during the tribulation is not do whatever you can to protect your physical safety. That's not his call to the church. His call to the church is to be a faithful witness to the slain lamb who sits on the throne. That's what we're supposed to be doing during the tribulation. And that's how we keep the words of this prophecy, by being faithful witnesses. We keep the words of this prophecy when we refuse to worship anyone or anything other than Jesus. In the first century, when this was written, there was a great temptation to worship the Roman Empire and to worship the emperor. Because in worshiping those things, you received Money, power, and safety. Money, power, and safety. And likewise, today, there is always a temptation to value money, power, and safety more than Christ, more than his teaching, more than his example. Right? There's always that temptation. We are always tempted to follow the way of the lion rather than the way of the lamb. But the message of Revelation is keep following Jesus. Keep choosing the way of the Lamb. Keep choosing the way of sacrificial love. Like Jesus, value love and truth and goodness more than money, power, and safety. That is how you keep the words of this prophecy. Worship God and God alone. But there's always this pull, this temptation to worship things other than God. Always. And we even see that in this passage, right? Because once John has received this prophecy, what's his reaction? It's to fall down and, and worship the angel, right? And the angel says, no, no, don't do that. Have you heard anything in this whole prophecy, John? The whole point of the prophecy is worship God and worship God alone. That's why we get this little uh, detail here, because it's reminding us of the whole point of the prophecy, Worship God, right? Even when the dragon and the beast and the false prophets are spouting their lies and vying for your allegiance and trying to tempt you with promises of wealth and power and safety, choose to worship God. Choose to follow the way of the Lamb. A metaphor that this passage gives for readying ourselves for Jesus' return is washing our robes. Washing our robes. Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now you might remember, this is not the first time that Revelation has talked about washing our robes. 
Way back in chapter 7, we probably looked at this one uh, over a year ago. Way back in chapter 7, when John sees the multitude of people from every tribe and nation and language standing around the throne and worshiping God, uh, he's told, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, remember, this is, this is all symbolic. Obviously, this doesn't make sense from a laundry perspective, right? <laughs> you can't make something white by washing it in blood. Washing robes is a symbol of us being cleansed of our sin. Cleansed of our sin. And what that tells us right there is that the way that we are cleansed of our sin is through the blood of the Lamb. Meaning, we are cleansed through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross... For our behalf. Okay, that is what reconciles us to God. That is what cleanses us of our sin. So the way that we wash our robes, metaphorically speaking, is by recognizing what Christ has done for us. By putting our faith in him, by trusting in him, and by receiving this gift that he offers of reconciliation with God. That is how we wash our robes. Now, Scripture is clear, okay, that when we wash our robes, when we put our faith in Jesus, that does affect our behavior. There's a necessary connection between those two things. Okay, one does not happen without the other. That's why we're told, right, outside the city are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So part of readying ourselves for Christ's return, which could happen at any moment, is turning from these kinds of sins. That is part of getting ready. And just a side note, in case you're wondering, okay, this is not saying that dogs literally won't be in the kingdom, like literal dogs. Dogs is a kind of a, a slang for uh, human beings who practice evil things, like weasels, okay, so... Don't, don't take that literally. But yes, part of readying ourselves for Jesus' return should be turning from sin. But I want to be clear this, about this. <clears throat> the way that we turn from sinful things is not just by trying to work on our behavior. Okay, It's by turning toward Jesus. By allowing him to wash our robes, right? By trusting that he has done what is necessary through the cross to forgive us and to transform us. Now, what if you look at that list of sinners right there who are outside the city and you think, I'm worried that describes me. What if that's what you're thinking right now? If that's what you're thinking, here's something I want you to notice. These people who are described as outside the city, are they there because God doesn't want them in the city or because they've chosen to be outside the city? There was an interesting detail in the passage from last week that I didn't talk about. It says that the gates of the city will never be shut. The gates of the city will never be shut. Now, what does that imagery suggest? It suggests that if anyone is outside the heavenly city, 
It's a self-imposed exile. It's not because God has said no to them being part of the city. God has done everything he can. He has flung the gates to the heavenly city wide open. Right? He has gone as far as to take on human flesh and suffer and die on a cross so that we might come into the heavenly city. God's not saying no. Ultimately, if someone's not part of the heavenly city, it's because they prefer these sinful behaviors to the sinless environment of the heavenly city. Okay, it is a self-imposed exile. And so if you feel like you're, you're part of this list, I want you to hear this. The doors of the heavenly city are open to you. And God is inviting you, come on in. He's inviting you, if you're thirsty, come and drink the water of life. I'm not saying no to you. I'm calling you to me. Okay, but you have to turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus, turn toward the heavenly city. So I want you to feel welcome this morning. I want you to feel the invitation to move away from evil and to move towards Christ and towards the forgiveness and healing that he offers. The gates are open. Come. All right, before we look at the very last part of the passage, I just want to comment on one more line in this section that might be a little confusing. Verse 11 says, Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Did that, that part strike you as strange at all? It's, when I first read it, I thought it was kind of weird because it, it sounds like it's saying, Hey, you know, those of you who are doing evil, don't repent. You know, keep it up. You'll get what's coming to you. And, and that doesn't sound right, right? Because, like I just said, the gates of the heavenly city are open. Jesus is always calling us to repent and to, to, to turn towards him, right? And to, to come and, and drink the water of life, right? So, why, why, what's going on here? Well, here's how I understand this, okay? It's important to recognize the angel is not speaking to those who are practicing evil. Right? The angel is speaking to John, and then through John is speaking to the church. So when the angel says, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong, what I hear is a reminder that we as the church are not supposed to be in the business of vengeance. Okay, And that is definitely a theme that is run throughout Revelation. Okay? Even though Revelation is all about uh, how, how wicked the, the forces of evil empire are and, and, and how they, they seek to persecute the church, even though it's all about that, there's no point where it ever says, assassinate the emperor. Right? There's no point where it ever says, gather arms together so you can destroy the wicked. Right? There's nothing about that. Instead it says, patiently endure. Right? Follow the way of the lamb. Even if the way of the lamb leads to death. Follow the way of the Lamb. So that's what I hear in this, is a reminder of that, okay? Turn from vengeance. Turn the other cheek. Let those who do evil do evil. You can do that, right? Because you know that in the end, Jesus wins. You know that in the end, evil will fail. That's the message of this prophecy. 
So press on. In the end, it's going to work out. All right, let's finish up. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. There's that open invitation again, right? Whoever is thirsty, take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, what's going on here? This is a strong warning at the end of the prophecy that I think we need to hear because this book, right, has been abused a lot. And throughout this series, I have said over and over again, we have to be careful not to be dogmatic about our interpretations of this book because it's a hard book. We have to come to it with humility. And this is another reason from God why we should not be dogmatic, right? Because when we're dogmatic, we try to make Revelation say things that it might not necessarily say, and we encourage division through that, right? And yet, we have this reminder at the end of Revelation, don't add to this book. Adding to this book doesn't necessarily mean that you're literally inserting words into it, right? But it could just mean that you declare that you know what certain parts of it mean and demand that others think the same thing, even though those parts are hard to figure out, right? So if I were to summarize this, it would be like, don't be dogmatic as you're reading Revelation in the future. Be, be careful, be humble, okay? Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by the book of Revelation. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I was fascinated by the idea that I could know the future. And... So when I was in junior high, and I was in confirmation class at church, and we had to pick a subject for our confirmation class final project, I chose Revelation. I don't even remember if I read Revelation. I think I skimmed it. I hope I read it. But what I do remember is I read a book called Late Great Planet Earth by a guy named Hal Lindsey. It's from the 70s. I assumed Hal knew what he was talking about, and I wrote my paper, which is basically a synopsis of the Left Behind series. And then I was supposed to create some kind of visual to complement the paper, and so I had my dad help me, and we made a sign, a wooden sign, that said Maranatha. And Maranatha is the Aramaic phrase that means, come, O Lord the phrase that we hear repeated at the end of Revelation. Come, O Lord, Maranatha. 
So my dad and I, we, we made this sign, and I submitted my paper to the lead pastor. And on Confirmation Sunday, I gave a little presentation in church, held up my sign, gave my synopsis of Revelation. Fortunately, they confirmed me. Um, and, uh, and that was that. And when I went home, I, I took the Maranatha sign, and I put it over the window in my room. And even though I'm no longer in that room, that sign to this day still sits over the window. Maranatha, 23 years later. Now, over the last 23 years, my interpretation of Revelation has changed dramatically. I no longer think that Hal Lindsey is the pinnacle of good scholarship. Uh, I no longer think Revelation teaches that Christians will be raptured away in order to avoid hardship. I, uh, I no longer think that the locusts represent helicopters. I, uh, I recognize now how important it is to understand the first century context when Revelation was written and the, the significance of the Roman Empire and the symbolic nature of apocalyptic writing. I didn't understand any of that before. So, honestly, I can't affirm a lot of what I wrote in that paper, maybe even most of what I wrote in that paper now. But there is something from that project that I can still affirm, and I can affirm it even more now than 23 years ago. And that's the prayer on that sign. Maranatha, come, O Lord, the cry at the end of chapter 22. That is a, a prayer, a cry of the heart that rises out of us when we realize two things. One, the world is not as it should be. And two, we can't fix it. And so our hearts cry, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Another cancer diagnosis. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Another miscarriage of justice. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Another Christian leader found guilty of abusive behavior. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Another report of persecution. A church in Nigeria, people breaking in during worship. Radicals killing people as they worship. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Rising levels in our society of anxiety and depression and suicide. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Rampant sexual immorality. The normalization of pornography. Human trafficking. Online predators. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. The widening gap between rich and poor. Exploitation of those who don't have enough. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, an avalanche of daily misinformation, propaganda, so much confusion, disagreement on what the truth is, disregard for facts. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, deep, deep confusion about who God is and what God is like. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.